Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. Alright, so last night we gathered together around the campfire and we shared stories about what it means to be God's people and stories about belonging. And, and so far over this camp, we've heard stories of rest. We've heard stories about how we belong to one another. And then we've heard those powerful individual testimonies of what it has meant to you to belong to us as a we collective. It's, it's a powerful thing to share stories. This is why what Kristen said was so important. It's powerful to gather around each other and hear each other's testimonies hear each other's stories of where God met me. In fact, the Israelites thought this was so powerful that before we got together and had camps, they would be in the middle of the desert and they were like, whoa, we just had a moment with God. Let's build a little monument. This is not an altar. This is not a God in of itself. This is just a place to say, this is where God met us. So if we're ever in the desert again and we run across this, we're like, oh yeah, God met us here and he can do it again. So we hear stories like that. But this morning, the most important thing that you need to hear is this, that God has made you to belong to him. More than to belong to each other. It is so important to belong in community. But the reason the community you belong to is so important is because of the way God has called you to belong to him first and foremost. So we're going to talk about that. Now, let's, let's talk about kids and parents for a moment, because... Kids and parents sort of belong to each other. And there's a thing that happens when you're a child and you grow up and you realize, oh, uh, somebody goes to you, you look just like your parent and a part of you dies. (laughs) Or even worse, oh, that's exactly the way your father behaved. or Oh, that's exactly what your mum does. And a lot of you dies in that moment. Right, yeah, you're all thinking right now, oh, that's, yeah, that thing, that thing I was told once. And most of you are thinking, but I'm not actually like that. All right, sure. <laughs> the thing is, we resemble those who give us input. We resemble those who pour into us, who serve us. We resemble those we spend the most time around. Okay, just a little, little Insta for you behind me up here. I love this. Jared got me onto this. Nathan Pyle. Christian dude, but that's kind of irrelevant. It's just aliens expressing basically the things we express in different language. Congratulations on your offspring. Thank you. We collaborated. (laughs) The face bones resemble both of your face bones, less so yours. Ah, I tried to obscure my disappointment. It is difficult with these cheekbones. Yes, they are prominent. (laughs) Because... There's a part of us, especially when we're parents, we want, our ki- we want to be able to see ourselves in our children. And God is the same with you. When he looks at you, he doesn't just want to see people. He wants to see his people. Yeah. He wants to see a people that know they are called and chosen and brought to him. Yeah. And it is a powerful thing to do. We resemble those who we allow to influence us. Now, Speaking of those who resemble those that you allow to influence them, this morning's reading we heard from the Apostle Peter. And I just just sense God putting this on my heart ages ago for this morning at camp. And I just kind of left it for ages going, I I don't know what he wants to do with it, but we'll get there. We'll work out what he wants to do with it. And the thing about Peter is Peter is known, he's the father of the church. He's the first great bishop, the first pope in Rome. He, He is the first Christian in many ways. 
However, he's also known for being a colossal screw-up. He's the guy who walked on water but then fell over into the water. He face-planted into the water. Like This is kind of vintage Peter. I walk on water and then I face-plant into it. Uh, I go to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and I chop off a dude's ear and fall asleep. Uh, I go, I follow Jesus all the way to the courtyard and then I deny him three times because a 13-year-old waitress challenges me. This, this is kind of the life of Peter. But Peter, when Pentecost comes, changes. The Holy Spirit comes in him and all the influence that Jesus has had on him, suddenly Peter begins to resemble Jesus a bit more than he realized. He was actually doing better than he thought he was. He was already resembling Jesus a bit more than he knew. It's just he was trying so hard to do the right thing that he kept getting in his own way. Anyone relate? And Jesus says, just relax. Don't make me call you Satan again. (laughs) Just relax. Jesus was future focused. He's not looking at what Peter had done. He's not even concerned with, with what Peter's doing in that moment. He's saying, come on, let's start. Let's go again. And there's this beautiful passage, and I, I can never remember. I think it's at the end of Luke's gospel, but it might be at the end of John's, where Peter is restored by Jesus. Like, Peter denies him three times, and Jesus says three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's this beautiful counterbalance to the denial that he gives. Anyway, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Um, Jesus is future-focused, and it's really important that you catch this idea. It's not where you start that counts. It's where you finish. It's not where you start. It's not where you are today It's where you will be when you're finished running the race of Christ. You can start. In fact, Paul talks about this really beautifully. The writer of Hebrews talks about this, where they say, here's where you start. You start on the day where Jesus meets you, and that day is called today. That's the language he uses. He says, the day called today is where Jesus meets you, and that's where you go from. Isn't that amazing? That means that even if you are the one or two people that were around the campfire last night going like, oh, it wasn't as great for me, you can start today. How good is that? That's the grace of God. So Peter describes Jesus in this passage as the first kind. I'm going to go through scripture really quickly this morning because I don't think that's actually what God wants me to dwell on. Peter, Peter describes Jesus as the first of a new kind of temple. And, and he calls, he, and it's built with living stones, living stones, which doesn't make any sense. But this is the sort of stuff we read in the Bible. And we're like, yeah, living stones. Like, what are you talking about? Living stones, that doesn't make any sense. This is what Peter says. In fact, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But this living stone idea is something that comes through scripture again and again, which is something that is dead comes to life. I love seeing, I love Ezekiel. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And in 36, uh, God is talking to Ezekiel about how he's going to take a heart of stone and create in it a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel sees the valley of skeletons of dry bones. And God says, can they live? And Ezekiel's like, I don't know, can they? (laughs) Only you know, God. And so God says, yes, they can. I can breathe on them. I can make the dead come alive in Christ. This is a theme again and again in Scripture. So Peter takes it and he says, you all are like stones, which when you consider the way Jesus sometimes spoke to religious folk, he says, you're hard-hearted. You're whitewashed tombs, which are kind of stone ideas. Peter's like, you're stones, but you're alive. You're living stones. In fact, he says, you're the new temple. Remember, like I said before, what the Ark of the Covenant was, that's you now. You are the living temple. You're carrying the presence of God. So Peter then goes on and he, and he affirms that we have a belief in Jesus that will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. If we can allow ourselves to be wise enough to be obedient 
to God's truth. And then we get these magnificent verses in in verses 9 and 10. I love this. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. The ESV says a people of his own possession. I just love that. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he goes on to say this, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. What You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is what Peter calls us, right? I just hear this in light of who Peter is. This guy who's been brought from death to life, this guy who was hard-hearted and foolish and had become this leader of people. Peter says, you're a chosen race. Here's this Jewish man writing to the churches across the world. And he is writing to the churches across the world. He says, you're a chosen race. And we should hear this and go, no, we're not. We're not Jewish. The Jewish people are the chosen race. Why are you saying that? But Peter's saying, no, no, no. God's chosen race is those who obey God's word. And then he says, you're a royal priesthood. And we should hear that and go, no, we're not. The Levitical priests are the royal priesthood. The the Davidic line ended up becoming the royal priesthood, really. And Peter is pointing out that, no, 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 we are are royal. We've been adopted into God's family. There is no way we can overemphasize that point. Adopted into God's family. And we are a priesthood. In fact, we are the priests of this new temple where the spirit of God is inside of us. Quick and important point. The spirit of God is inside of us, but not limited to us. Okay. You are not God, just to be clear. Then Peter goes on to say, you're a holy nation. It's like, nope, nope. Definitely that was when the Israelites gathered under godly kings like David, like Solomon, like Josiah, like Jehoshaphat. These are the godly kings. That's when we were a holy nation. But Peter says, the true holy nation is the gathering of believers together under one high priest. And we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus Christ. This is what the kingdom of Israel was meant to be. We are now living out what Israel was always meant to be. We're a theocracy in the truest sense, but Jesus is our head of state. Finally, he says, we are a people of his own possession. And this is where it all begins to come together. Our God is future focused. He is not penalizing you for where you began, but he's calling you into the future to start again. I believe what God is looking for is a people of his own possession. And church, that's what he wants from us this morning. He wants us to consider what does it mean to be part of God's own possession, part of the royal family. Does anyone, ever, does anyone remember Princess Mary, the Princess Mary story? I mean, some of you might remember, for those of you who don't, the Princess Mary story, right, is based, like, I'm not even making this up. This Tasmanian chick goes to Sydney for the Sydney Olympics, meets this dude in the bar, a bar. They get talking, um, get together, start dating. And he's like, by the way, I am the crown prince of Denmark. Um, I would like to marry you and you are going to be effectively one day. You will be the queen of Denmark. This Tasmanian bird becomes, is going to become the queen of Denmark. So she is now the royal princess Mary of Denmark. And she has, you know, she's a royal, so she's got all those subtitles as well. But this is like a, a small version of what it's like for us to be adopted into God's family. But way more, way more. We are, we are I don't know, well, more like from Kangaroo Island than Tasmania. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's good. All right, 
So let me, let me get practical this morning. I, I believe God is looking for a people of his own possession. I believe that is people who are willing to take the pile of light and turn it right up. I believe it is people who are hungry. I want to give you four characteristics of belonging to God's own people and then four ways you can see if that's happening in your life. So here's four characteristics. This is good note-taking stuff. It's going to be so good, so tweet-worthy. It's going to be so great. Four characteristics of belonging to God's own people. Number one, they count the cost. People who belong to God's own possession count the cost. That is, they know what their salvation is worth. They put a timer on every three minutes to say, remind me, my salvation's important. This, this is what happens. We, we know what it costs God to buy our salvation. People of God's own possession don't count their grace cheaply. They know that it is free as a gift, but it costs so very much. It costs the life of Jesus. We will not allow Jesus' death to go cheaply. The cost to give us life. So number one, they count the cost. Number two, they mind the gap. People who belong to God's own possession mind the gap. That is, they know they are grafted onto the vine. Remember uh, Saturday morning, I was talking about that passage from Romans where we are grafted on like wild olive shoots. Now, I'm an adopted kid. So for me, I I get that. Like I've just been adopted into this middle-class family. I've met my birth family too, and and they're also really middle-class. So in that sense, you know, no real shift. But it's it's a sense of going, wow, this family has allowed me to be grafted into their family, has allowed me to say, you can take my name. You can take all the authority. You can take all the inheritance. You've been adopted into God's royal family, and you get the inheritance of God. Now, just think about that. If you're lucky enough to have fairly wealthy parents, and you definitely don't think about what the inheritance will be someday, (laughs) if you are like that, you know that you're going to end up with a pretty good inheritance. You are God's children. What does that mean in terms of your inheritance? What does that mean? Unbelievable life. That's what it means. Let's hold on to that for a second. So for us Gentiles, us non-Jewish folk, most of us, we are, we are all the adopted kids. He <laughs> just stared straight at me as it happened, James. <laughs> we were not born with a silver spoon in our mouth. Right? We were grafted onto the vine and we should mind the gap. Not in guilt, not in shame, not in obligation, but just to say, wow, out of darkness into light. Out of darkness into light. We need to mind the gap. We need to sit in God's gratitude, uh, gratitude for God's extended grace to us. Number three, four characteristics. Number three, they see the need. They know how important the mission of God is. Now, you can take this in a, in a variety of ways, because let me be really clear. Jesus said again and again, love the poor, serve the poor. Love the weak, serve the weak. Love the marginalized, serve the marginalized. However, we get it wrong because we decide that loving and serving the marginalized is because they're a minority or because they're, they are um, poorer. They have less money. That's why we serve them. Or they have less of something and we give them. We treat it like it's an equality thing. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's a spirit thing. It is a spirit thing. Because the people on the outside were excluded from temple worship. The people on the outside did not have the community of God gathered around them. We get it wrong in our hearts. The other reason Jesus tells us to do it is so that we won't get addicted to the idols of our hearts. Jesus is helping, the, letting the poor of the world. Let me rephrase this again. Jesus 
is using the poor of the world and their gifts to allow us to be healed of the idolatry of our hearts. You are being ministered to by the poor when you give them your money because you're allowing yourself to be limited in that way. Does that make sense? I feel like that's a, that's a whole message in itself. Uh, let, me just, let me just put that over there. I've got to be careful when I subtweet. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just, just going to put that over there. When we see the need, the great need of the world is for the presence of God. That was the great need. This is why Jesus came and railed against the religious leaders because they said, no, no, God's behind this curtain. We'll tell you when you can go see him. And Jesus was like, no, no, you do not limit God. God's power and presence is limited so you don't die, but you do not get to make rules about who gets to meet God. Only God does that. So when we see the need, this is what happens. Found people, find people. People with the spirit of God in them who have been found by Jesus Christ, hold on to it. They build a pillar in the desert and say, this is where God met me. And when they find somebody else who hasn't yet been there, who is still in the desert, they say, you've got to come see this. You've got to come see this moment where God met me. And then they have their moment. And the best part is that becomes another moment for you. Where you're like, God met me again, used me in his grace to further his mission in the world. God chooses you to partner with, to see his mission done in the world. That doesn't make any sense. I could come up with way better vehicles and way better methodologies, and I am really not God. But God, in his grace, chooses you. He chooses you to be his hands and feet in the world. You are purposed and graced and gifted for this. It is not an accident. This is what should get the fires burning. Found people, find people. We see the need. For those of us who have been lost before, like distinctly we have been out of the kingdom of God and then brought in, it's actually not that hard for us. We remember. It's so fresh. For me, half my life has been firmly within God's kingdom. And I still remember like it was yesterday, what it felt like to be lost, what it felt like to be away from the presence of God. For those of us who grow up in the faith, I think it's sometimes a bit harder We have to hold on to the moment where Jesus met us and remember that an inherited faith is not the same as a living faith. Now, I think think most people I know in this church have a living faith, even if you've grown up with an inherited faith. But I just want to encourage you, hold on to that moment, know what it looks like, and use it to spur you on and save others. And please don't forget the importance of salvation. Don't do it. Don't get yourself sucked into this lie that, Oh, that was important for me. <laughs> well, why was it important for you? Because it's important for everyone. The presence of God, the lack of the presence of God is the greatest need in our world today. This should break our hearts. The mission of God is to see all of creation redeemed and restored, brought back to himself and re-imaged in the way God originally purposed. The good news is this is going to happen regardless Our job is to make sure it happens for as much of creation as possible. Here's the final one. Four characteristics of belonging to God's people. They pay the price. We count the cost. We know what it cost us to receive grace. We mind the gap. We know that we did not inherit this, but we were brought back. We were adopted in. We see the need of the mission, and then we say, now we will pay the price with our own lives. A people of God's own possession are those who will pay the ultimate price. They will give their own 
lives for the sake of Jesus. Now, for those of us here in the West, that probably will not look like martyrdom. I don't know what the future holds. I hope it doesn't look like martyrdom. But we are called to give our entire lives. All of it. Not a little part. Not the part that's comfortable for us. Not just Sundays. Not just the bits that are convenient. Here's, here's where it probably makes more sense. Uh, I, I don't think martyrdom will be in the immediate future for most of us, but some of you, you might be called into the mission field and you might be called into a space where actually martyrdom is a real possibility. This is why we partner with Open Doors, because they are protecting persecuted Christians. But more than that, they're equipping them. <laughs> Less protecting, more equipping. Anyway, another, another message for another time. What, what it will probably mean to pay the price is that you will have to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. This is not a tithing sermon. Yes, tithe, but that's, again, like we've talked about that. In the New Testament, tithing is a baseline. Not, it's, it's not like a, oh, now you've re- reached the role. Like it's, no, 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 tithing is kind of the minimum expectation financially. Now what are you doing with the rest of your money? Because it's all God's. So how are you spending it all? Oh, well, I really needed the new iPhone. Because what has another camera on it? Yeah, yeah. Don't you have the, the iPhone before that? Yeah. And, and that's how you need to spend that $600? What is it, $800? It's probably more. That's an absurd amount of money for a phone. Okay. Just $1,800. Can we just sit with that for a minute? Like, I'm, I'm joking, in a sense. You know, everyone's going to have a phone. Everyone's going to have a smartphone nowadays. It's fine. Just think about that, though. I know people that, that don't have cars worth $1,800. Let, let, me, let, me tell, let me tell you where the real sacrifices land. It's, it's not in, in finance, and I don't think it's even in the way we serve, right? So, you know, one of the things Jen talked about on Friday night is that we should serve and work from a place of rest, not the other way around. We don't work so we can get to rest and collapse. We rest to fill us so that we can do the work God is calling us to. So it's not even that service. I actually think time and relationships are the great sacrifices we're mostly going to be called to make in the 21st century. Finance should be something that we need to continually bring before God. Jesus talks about it all the time. Why? Because it's an idol of our heart. We, let it, we think we're in control when we have money. And then God's not in control. Okay, So leave that. But the, the reason I think it's time and, and people is because there is a new idol coming up. That The first one is time, but we says we're so busy. We're so busy. And we are. But guess who has control over how busy we are? 99% of the time, it's us. 99% of the time, it is. There, there are occasions where you are stuck. There may be seasons where you're excruciatingly busy. But usually in those seasons, you can make wise choices around your other time. You can capture five minutes, ten minutes here and there. You'd be amazed what you can do. People talk about um, who do you get to do something if you really need it done, and you get a busy person to do it because they know how to manage their life already. So that's, we know about that. We know about time. Relationships, though, the other idol I see coming up is self-care. Okay? Now, I want to speak into this carefully. I wrote, an, I wrote a lengthy blog post a few days ago about mental health and suicidal thoughts, and I'm just, uh, 
overwhelmed with the way people responded to that and the, the way people reached out and, and communicated their own brokenness in that. And I just want to honour and thank those people for their courage in doing that. When I'm talking about self-care being an idol, what I'm really talking about is the idea that you don't have time to love others because you're too busy loving yourself. It's this idea that... And there are some of you that your idol is serving others. And, and so self-care is actually not so much self-care as it's breaking the idolatry that you're better when you serve. Mm. Self-care for a lot of other people is looking out to those and going, actually, I need to reach out and serve you. You're in pain. How can I reach out and love you? You have a need. How can I come and be with you? It's a very, very big difference. Keep your health high. Talk to people. Go and see a doctor. Have, again, talk to people. I guess I was thinking of counsellors and psychologists then, but you need to find friends who you can go 100% deep with. I think I talked about this yesterday morning. You go about 70% real at church, and that's at a very real church like ours. You go about 90 to 95 a life group if you're lucky. You cannot go 100% in those spaces, but you need to find someone you can, that you can empty yourself, and there'll be no judgment, but there'll be, I'm with you in this. Are you going to tell me what to do? Probably not. Are you going to judge me? Absolutely not, but I'm with you in it. That kind of self-care, please keep doing. But don't keep doing the thing where we go, I can't, I can't go to that person's engagement party because I'm, just, I'm a bit tired tonight. That's not self-care. That's selfishness. Someone's inviting you into the most special moments of their life. Cherish that. Someone's saying, hey, like Jen shared the other night, oh, I, I just, I'm just in the lowest point of my life. And you're like, I want to help you. I really do. But I set aside this time for Netflix because I had a busy week. Tough look, isn't it? And nobody wants to feel that. But all of us do it. You will never regret the time you spend investing in people if you do it because you love Jesus and you love people out of that. You never regret it when it's out of the overflow of the Spirit of God. You never regret it when it's got nothing to do with, with selfishness and you're like, how can I be with you? You'll also never regret it if you're very wise about the boundaries you make on people who try and repeatedly pull from you again and again. You have to be wise, okay? I'm not saying like just bungee jump without a cord. I am saying don't let self-care become an idol. Be thoughtful, be wise, be prayerful, but be loving. Be relational. Serve other people. I don't know. I feel like if you're here and God's putting a little tweak in your heart for ministry, you have no idea what that looks like yet, what capacity that looks like, you need to hear that, that you'll never regret investing in other people. Okay, I've heard other pastors say it, they're wrong. They're just looking at it the wrong way. When you're investing in people, you're planting seeds. Okay? All right. God is looking for a generation of people hungry to display attributes of belonging, passionate to look like their Lord. Four characteristics of belonging to God's people. Four ways to respond to God's call of being a people of his own possession. Number one, the most important one, obedience of the heart. If you want to respond to God's call in a way that looks like God, be obedient from the heart. A huge problem for Christians is when we start judging the will and purpose of God as if that's what we're meant to do. And all through the Old and New Testaments, God sends his prophets to remind them, remind the people, I want your heart's devotion, not your approval to how I do things. 
We don't like that very much. We like to be able to go every, through everything and go, well, I don't know if I like that part. God's not up in heaven going, oh, geez, should I change it? He's not requiring your approval because if you suddenly decide that, yes, you approve of who God is and agree that God is right and so you'll serve him, you come at it with the wrong intentions. You begin to see it as an obligation that comes from your approval. Okay, You'll see serving God, something that says, I now approve of you, God, so I feel obliged to serve you. And what that does is it creates a bitter spirit. It'll create a bitter spirit in you. God does not desire your approval. He desires your affection. Affection, not approval. Affection drives obedience more than obligation does. Affection will fill your life with joy and a gentle heart, not a bitter spirit and a hard heart. Affection leads to intimacy. Obligation leads to distance because you get cold. You get distant. You're like, you know what? I'll do it because I have to, but I don't like it. So don't, don't do that. Come closer. The closer you come with your heart, the more intimate you are with God, the more affectionate you are with God, the more you're longing to serve him. And then it doesn't become like, oh, I guess I have to. Have to serve the kids team today. Like, Are you kidding? You get to disciple our next generation? You get to raise up a group of world changers? Wow. No, don't do that. The faithful are of better use to God than the talented. I'll say that again so that you can put it on your Instagram story. The faithful are of better use to God than the talented. They are because the affectionate will obey with love. The obligated will obey with bitterness. But God is looking for people who obey from the heart and allow their hearts to be shaped by him. Number two, people who hunger for his presence. You need to cultivate in yourself garden in yourself a desire for the presence of God. If right now you feel like, uh, I'm 50-50, <laughs> you need to cultivate that. You need to work at it like your own private garden. Tend it. Grow it. Cultivate the presence of God. Because in a, in a world that is increasingly digital, a personal, transformational, spiritual experience will turn someone's life upside down. There is a reason, five years ago, all, all the people talking about how to grow a church would say things like, well, as long as you're not just opening the doors and putting a billboard out and expecting people to come in. Now, I mean, that's not how you should look to grow a church, but it, it kind of works because there, uh, there is a sense out there that people are hungry for God's spirit and they're like, where's a place where I can find it? That says church. I don't know how I feel about church, but I know how badly there's something missing in my life, so... I'm going to give it a go. You'd be amazed the amount of stories that happen. I love it when people are like, found you on Instagram, found you on Facebook, found you because I drove past your billboard. But when you're hungry for the presence of God, you're searching for it. And God is looking for a people, a people to call, a people of his own possession who are hungry for his presence, not again to approve of who he is. So practice spiritual disciplines, but practice them not out of obligation, but out of a hunger for his presence. Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the greatest gift the world has ever known. Your friends and family, this is important because many of you are at uni and you get hard-hitting questions from people and they're good questions. But your friends and family don't need answers to their information. They need a spiritual transformation. And most of them, if you scratch the surface a little bit, will probably agree with that. Like you, if, you, if you ask them, they'll probably go, actually, yeah, I just, 
I don't know, I'm, I'm hungry for something. And I, I want answers to these. It's not that I don't, but really, I just, I'm just longing for, and they can't put a word on it. You go, it's presence. What you're longing for is presence. The gift we bring, my little arcs of the covenant, is you bring the presence to them. All right. That was a weird thing to say to you. So <laughs> number, th- number three, I'm going to move through these last couple quickly. Number three, conformance to his image. Ooh. The most non-conformist thing you can do for your life in 2020 is to choose to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Because everyone else says, no, I will not look like that. And then all of them are being Instagram influencers. <laughs> we are all conforming to the image of something. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, it means perusing the New Testament in particular, but all through scriptures and asking the question, what does it look like to look like Jesus? And then to do those things, going back to the paying the price that I talked about before. I'll just leave that one. That's, that's a nice, simple one, except to do. <laughs> Number four, responding to God's call, people who contend in the spiritual. If you are going to be a people of God's own possession, you're going to need to contend in the spiritual. So this is why um, we are preaching on prayer next. Uh, Jen and I have been talking about this for ages, just spitballing, just going, okay, what the great movements of God that have happened. I've I got to tell you, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm the pastor here. I'm 100% biased. But I feel like there's a great move of God in this room. I feel like there's fire. I feel like the Spirit is speaking to people. Great move of God will not come because I tell you all what to do. It'll come because the presence of God has been released in you. The Spirit of God is in the people of God. The great moves of God come when we contend in the spiritual, when we pray and pray and pray and pray. I was, I was listening to someone share this story with me recently, and they were talking about praying for somebody in their life who they, they look at them and they say, are you praying for me again? And they're like, yep. And just basically like deal with it. <laughs> they go, okay. <laughs> they don't know what to do with it yet, but they will. They will someday. They will someday. We contend in the spiritual. Now, there's all sorts of scriptures we can go to to look at this, right? Uh, one, one of the important ones is when we are reminded by Paul that, that we're, not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, meaning when somebody is annoying you, it's not that person really. It's what's going on behind it. It's the way the world, the flesh, and the devil are causing us to behave in a way that afflicts each other. But I, I think what is helpful, and I say this not because I think it's the best thing, but because I think it might translate best to what you're all going to hear, is to say, okay, to contend in the spiritual sometimes looks like your friend calling you up and saying, I'm suicidal. And you saying, I love you. I am so glad that you called me. I'm going to drive around to your house right now. I'm going to sit with you. Don't hang up. I'm going to stay on the phone the whole time. Yep, we're going to chuck. Um, it's on speaker. It's on speaker. We're in the car. I'm going to talk to you the whole time. I'm here. Okay, now I'm talking to you. I'm hanging up. What we're going to do is we're going to call the suicide hotline together, right? And then I'm going to pray for you. And then once the moment is managed and that person is in a place of health, whether they need to be in hospital for a moment or whether you need to stay with them for a moment or whether you need to invite family members, you drive home and on your way back, you are praying and contending in the spirit. Can you hear how the the practical and the spiritual meet where heaven and earth kiss? 
That's, that's what it means sometimes to contend in the spiritual. What I don't want you to do is hear that and go, yep, need to be more practically minded. No, no, no. You need to be more spiritually minded. It used to be that people would say the problem with Christians is they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's not really the problem with Christians in Australia in the 21st century. We're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. We need to contend for the spiritual. Up your prayer life. Be persistent in prayer. Your spiritual actions need to accompany your practical actions, but your practical actions should not occur without spiritual accompaniment. Okay? It's, it's underrated, underappreciated, it's critical. Spiritual contending. <coughs> spiritual contending. Contending means to fight, to battle, to wage war. That's what you're doing. Sometimes people call Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and they talk about his ways of nonviolence. No, no, not exactly. <laughs> he took violence upon himself. He, he didn't exactly say be nonviolent. That's not to say we should go out and start a war with another nation and kill people. What it is to say is Jesus would say, do violence in the spiritual to the works of the enemy. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Gird yourself up with spiritual armor. The armor of God. Is the armor of God to get in a physical fight? No. It is to defeat the powers and principalities of the enemy. That's what Jesus is calling you to do. Anyway, the problem with us as believers now is that we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. Our great difficulty, and Peter points to this, is a holiness problem. It is a holiness problem to pursue the image of Jesus, to conform to the picture of Christ. Um, and, and there's a few reasons, but I think the one I really want to highlight is we just don't really want to stand out. <clears throat> we just don't really want to be picked as Christians. We don't want to have our hand up for that because there's two reasons. There's a picture we have in our head of what happens to those people who identify themselves as believers. And then there's a picture that we think other people have in their head of what they see when we do that. Firstly, and just really briefly, relationship overcomes all those barriers. If you have a strong relationship with somebody, they're not judging you for being a jerk, unless you've been a jerk. Then you've got some other stuff to worry about. But if you've got a strong relationship, it doesn't matter. You're speaking out of a place of relational integrity, relational strength. But what you are called to do is to stand out from the crowd. Christians should stand out from the crowd. So... Because our experiences is when we think of Christians who stand out, tell me if I'm wrong, you see people on street corners or you see aggressive Facebook posts that help nobody or you see people well actuallying everyone in sight. I don't think that's what Christians really look like when they stand out. I think they look more like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King. I think they look more like John Wesley who just gets on his horse, drives to the next town and starts a church. And then he gets back on and does it again. But what we do is when we see this, that people who stand out get shut down, is we stop trying to be holy and we start trying to fit in. Start going, what if we made church cool enough for, for it to be exactly like the world around us? I don't think we're doing that here, by the way. But I do think... That's been a battle that I have fought as a pastor in my own heart and that I definitely have seen people around me fight in their own hearts. It, cool is irrelevant because cool changes, right? Cool, cool is irrelevant by definition because as soon as you're like, oh, that's what's cool now, and you catch up to it, it's gone. <laughs> you can't 
You can't do that. You can't fight a war like that. And, and that's what we're trying to do here. So when we stop trying to be holy, right, let me just throw some of this out at you. We normalize wine trips. I love wine. I will probably have a glass of wine at lunch today. Relax, everybody. But we normalize that as if go, look how normal I am. I'm just like you. All right. Are we going Kentucky tours? <laughs> We're like, it's fine. Like, Kentucky tours, just come on. Nah. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. I'm going to start ranting. Or we just start swearing, like, oh, I want to fit in. And I love, I love, I love that Josh was so honest about his battle last night to go, you know, I've never been like that. And I've noticed that I've started doing it. And what did he say? Because of the culture I'm in, not because I'm like trying to be cool here, but because. Tell me if I'm wrong, Josh, but the culture is so strong that you just sort of start getting dragged on by the current. And that's what happens unless you go, I want to stand out rather than fit in. Now, here's, here's what happened in the early church. The early church stood out for their holiness. All right, Keller. Keller says this, Tim Keller, guru. Skeptics need more than an argument in order to believe. They need to observe intelligent, admirable fellow human beings. Having a Christian friend you admire makes the faith more credible. My mate Lee, who, who is now a believer, but through his wife, now wife, it's an awesome story, um, said that one of the things that made Christianity credible to him is I would just come to work with a Bible. I don't even really remember doing this, right? I was like 22 at the time. And I would just come to work with the Bible. I would read scripture and then just buy my, at lunchtime. And then I'd just be hanging out with everyone. And that was it. Like it wasn't magic. But then if people are trash talking, I just wouldn't do it. And if people are cursing up a storm, I'm not doing it. And if people are taking shortcuts, I'm not doing it. And I'm not saying, hello, I will not take that shortcut because of my integrity. Do you know what I mean? Like I just don't do it. And the way you... Act and the way you look begins to be picked up on. Oh, what if not everybody picks up on it? Then they will need to pick up on somebody else. But you can only influence the way God's calling you to influence. Here's what the early church did. Here's what stood out. This is a list written by non-believers of their era. Integrity in the face of persecution. They would not give up the name of Jesus. Generosity to the poor and generosity to each other. Their countercultural sexual morality. The Romans... The Romans just went for it, and the Christians did not. Sacrificial love for their enemies and their persistence in worship and gathering together. That's not a bad list. If you say, this is how we stand out. And this time at the life of the church, do you know who they had standing at doors? We talked about how the welcome team is the most important team because people decide within the first 10 minutes if they're going to stay. They had people standing at their doors. Do you know why? because they were turning away anybody they didn't know, because the emperor Nero was sending spies to come in, identify them as Christians, and kill them. So if they didn't know people, they were turning them away from church, and the church just kept growing because of the way in which they lived their lives. They knew they were God's own possession. They were held captive by this idea. They belonged to God. Encounter. God is looking for a people who are not ashamed of the gospel, but who stand out by the way they live, not by the way we judge the lives of others. This is where we get tripped up as Christians. God is looking for a people who stand out because they know they are already in. 
God's looking for people who stand out in his kingdom, in the world out there, because they know, they have a confidence that they are God's own possession. They know that already. And you know that. You belong to God. You are his people. You are his own possession. So it shouldn't be a problem to stand out from the crowd because you know you're already in. You're not trying to say, look at me, I'm standing out. All you're trying to do is say, there's Jesus, I'm following him. And the people around you are like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm just following Jesus. What does that mean? Oh, well, it means, and then you start unpacking. Well, that's weird. All right. You seem like a, you seem awful. I mean, I think I'm probably being pretty kind to you, but all right. You don't have to like it. I'm not trying to put it in your face, but I'm just telling you, I'm following Jesus and this is what it looks like. And eventually, do you know what happens? People start to look up and they go, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, don't, I don't get what it is they're doing, but something's different. And all I know about them that is different is that they follow this Jesus guy. This happens. This can be your story as you take that fire out into the world. Okay. Last important things you need to take as I've preached for three and a half hours are this. Number one, you belong to God. Number two, you belong to each other. And number three, there is always room for more to belong in God's kingdom. It's expansive by its very nature. There's always room for more. You belong to God. You belong to each other. And there's always room for those outside to belong. But we need to know the need. We need to feel the urgency. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.